Blog Talk Radio. Sometimes, I mean, some of our topics are really um, uh, difficult to slog through, and, and we're talking about uh, heavy-duty stuff. Today we're doing something a little different, and I hope you find it as fascinating as I do. Uh, the links between history and our, our current times are pretty strong, in no matter what area you look at. And usually when we're talking about women's issues, we talk about the link to history from say, the first wave of feminism. But we hardly ever go back further than that. Once in a while, we go back to the start of this country or we go back to uh, early European times. But we have a topic today that I think is really different, and I think it would really benefit us and inform us when we talk about women's roles and women's rights and status today. We're talking about women in ancient Egypt and surprisingly, we do know a lot about it. Well, I don't know a lot about it. That's the royal we. Uh, but I have two guests, one of whom specializes in women in ancient Egypt, Janet Johnson. Dr. Johnson, welcome. Thank you for Thank coming you. on the show. And, uh, you, te- you know, I could list your credits and everything, but if you were going to go up to somebody at a cocktail party and say what you do and what your areas of research are, what would you say? Um. I specialize in a stage of the Egyptian language, which is known as demotic, which comes from a Greek word meaning of the people. It's the stage of the language that was used in the first millennium B.C. and has a lot of the records which provide us information about the role of women in ancient Egypt. And my second major interest is in the study of the legal status of women in ancient Egypt. Um, And that's what I think we're going to talk about today. Well, great. And we are. And we also have a guest that, since I am totally uh, free of any knowledge of women in ancient Egypt, and since uh, uh, and it's okay for me to call you Janet? Uh, call me Jan, please. Oh, Jan, okay. And since Jan is an expert in her field, we have a kind of a, a, a buffer zone. And Cynthia, you get to be our buffer zone. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here and to be that buffer zone. I find Jan's work absolutely fascinating and very well, relevant. Know, but your work is also very significant and very interesting. Again, if you were giving, you know, we used to say the elevator pitch, but if you were giving the cocktail party pitch about what you do, uh, you have a very varied legal uh, career, and um, tell us what your what your cocktail party pitch would be if you described what you're doing. Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, I work as an attorney um, in the city of Chicago's finance and economic development division. I've done that for many years, and I do work in the financing of affordable housing and in job creation incentives and so on economically. Um, I also, for the last eight years, have taught classes at the University of Chicago Law School. Um, And my research interests are really about the intersection of economics, politics, and law. Um, I'm very interested in how law is used as a tool that reflects or reinforces or redistributes power. Um, and material uh, allocations of resources. And so I look at that across time and place. 
Um, and I find, you know, work like what Jan does just absolutely fascinating um, as it gives us an illustration with a lot of depth and precision uh, into a culture that is so far removed um, from what we're living in and yet so similar and so resonant in so many ways. So, again, I, I feel like looking at Jan's work, um, really gives me a sense of the fluidity of social constructs regarding the role of women and uh, what women's place in society can be, um, which then really illustrates how we're making specific choices today um, with respect to women's legal rights and so on, and that these things change over time. Well, and you and I talked. We're gonna. You and I are gonna get together for another show down the road because you have some fascinating ideas about uh, the 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 use of the courts uh, and how that impacts uh, the distribution of power, which is a great topic. And we're gonna come to that down the road uh, in a oh. different show. Um, but for this show, uh, Jan, your research is pretty extensive about ancient Egypt and women in ancient Egypt. Um, we talked off air about the laws, first of all, the laws as they applied to women in ancient Egypt. But let's lay a little bit of groundwork. Socially, what was the status of women in Egyptian society? Egyptian society it was a very hierarchical society, so that it was very cle clearly differentiated into the elites and the there wasn't as much of a middle class as we think of today and the peasantry and so part of of anybody's um identity was what their status was most of the information that we have about ancient Egypt is information about the elites because those were the people who could read and write and who left us monuments and left us documents from which we can try to pull out history. So most of what we know is about the elites. Within the elites, um, women were expected to stay at home, run the house, raise the family, and did not go out into the workforce and hold down a job. They got their status from their father, their brothers, and their husbands. And uh, that sounds like a, an absolutely horrible situation to most of us in the 21st century. But it was offset in two very important ways. In the well, first place... But it, that, the, the, it certainly wasn't unusual. I mean, we see this throughout history, oh, no, no, throughout no. culture. It's, it's, this is absolutely traditional. But there are two aspects to ancient Egyptian society which offset this very traditional pattern. One is um, the Egyptian concept of dualities. Egyptians saw dualities in everything, so that um, ancient Egypt consisted of Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt, and the king was the king of Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt. Um, and one of the important dualities in the cosmos was male and female. And one of the important things about the dualities was that both parts of the duality were important, and the, the, the civilization and the culture would not survive without both parts of the duality. So that unlike in many ancient and modern civilizations, the role, the women's role of running the house and so on was valued and there was respect given uh, so that you get in wisdom texts uh, uh, a, a schoolboy re who's reading a text and, and being taught how to behave as an upper class citizen uh, is told to respect his to respect his wife and not tell her how to run the house, not tell her how to do things. She's doing it just fine. Just leave her alone and let her take care of her work. You don't expect her to interfere with your job. 
although there are several cases where a woman does step in and cover for her husband when he's unavailable. Um, the other thing that's very important to the um, overall status of women is their legal almost equality with men. All ancient Egyptians were independent legal entities responsible for their own behavior. Uh, women, as well as men, could make contracts. Uh, they could be held to those contracts. Uh, they could buy and sell property. They could inherit property. They could pass property along to anyone they wanted to via inheritance. Um, the fact that women could own and did own uh, sometimes large amounts of property uh, meant that um, men did not have a monopoly on wealth and therefore on the power that went with wealth. And this changes the dynamics of uh, the relationships between men and women, that you don't have one group that's totally empowered and another group which is basically uh, unempowered. And um, in, in individual situations, in individual marriages, for instance, um, men remained dependent upon their fathers until the fathers died and they gained their inheritance. But there is some evidence, not conclusive, but some evidence that at least some of the time women got their inheritance at the time of their marriage, which means that they came into the marriage perhaps having at least as much access to wealth as their husband and perhaps more direct access because the husband might still be dependent on his father. This, this gives okay, a well, very different I, dynamic. I kind of like this. I kind of like the sounds of that because it seems to me, and again, you know, I mean, well, you know, I mean, this isn't, but it seems to me that oftentimes um, in late 20th, well, 20th century America, or even into, um, you know, into where we are now, um, oftentimes women kind of lose power when they enter a marriage contract. Well, certainly within recent history in the United States, within recent history within the United States, a married woman. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm asking Cynthia if she could kind of help help me interpret what I'm saying here about this. That <laughs> I'm sorry, I was talking over you. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Um, I, I think that it's important to understand. Again, this is an illustration from my perspective. Um, where you have uh, power and um, the ability of women to control their own lives and control certain aspects of their own lives directly related to their legal status. And it's because their legal status permits them to have ownership uh, of their own property and the abilities to convey that property that their status legally enables them to have uh, a, a different kind of power within the families, within society. And I think what's important about that is we look at today's uh, situation is that, well, you know, we expect that women should, of course, be able to own our own property here in the United States right now and dispose of it and so on. But that's very recent. It's in the 1850s, um, maybe the 40s through the 60s, you saw uh, the enactment of several um, marriage property, married women's property acts, which enabled women at that time to break out of the, the prevailing legal principle, which was that uh, once a woman was married, her entire legal identity collapsed into that of her husband. So I was just reading, I mentioned to you yesterday, a case um, from 1867 here in Illinois 
where the court decided that even though under this new act, this married women have you know the right to own their own property, it would be ridiculous, said the court, to think that women could actually convey their own property. So you're you're looking at something so that means where you could own it, but but you couldn't sell it. Exactly, without your husband's um, you know permission and him signing off on it. Whereas you have these you know uh, very clear legal documents in you know ancient Egypt in in this period of time that that that's of course you can convey home property, of course you can transfer it and so on. Um, so the status of women legally is just now sort of catching up uh, over the last 150 years or so um, to to legal principles that were absolutely uh, distinct in ancient Egypt in terms of the rights of women. Um, so another women in Egypt, in, I, I'd love to hear Janet. Yeah, Sorry? so women in Egypt a thousand years ago had rights that Western women are just, you know, relatively recently reacquiring. Exactly. And it's not a thousand years ago. You're talking about 3,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago. I'm sorry, 3,000 years ago. Yeah. You know, I'm going to jump in right now because I want to give out our phone number. Um, I find this fascinating. I hope that you do too. I think that it lays a perspective for where we are right now. Our call in number is 646 378 I also have the chat room open if you want to just type something there. But please join us in this conversation. I'm sure you'll think of questions that I didn't necessarily think of, and we've got uh, a couple of experts here who can answer them for us. So why is it, do you think it's just because, uh, I, I mean, there's so many things that separate modern Western women from Egyptian women in this time period, not only geography, but lack of knowledge. I mean, we really, I mean, it's only been the last hundred years or so that we've really had a lot of knowledge about Egypt and ancient Egypt, is it not, Jan? That's right. Yeah. So, you know, I, I mean, there's just such a big separation, and yet, wow, Egyptian women in that era seem to have rights that we're just, you know, in the last hundred years scrambling to reacquire. Now, I know from just general history reading that there have been different periods in Western culture, and I guess, you know, we haven't really talked about European or Asian culture, but um, there, there have been periods where women have had a lot more rights than they had. I mean, they're, they're, I'm, I think it was Wyoming that when they were in the process of statehood, seeking statehood, they gave, at the beginning they uh, gave the right to vote to women. But then... They took it but away. the United States as a whole did not. Right. Uh, and then they took it away, and they were using it as a tool to lure women to come and live in Wyoming. Um, right. I know that in the um, uh, revolutionary period, women owned property, they owned businesses, they could inherit. They, I mean, they had a lot of rights. But then once the country became established, they started eking away and etching, you know, taking away some of those rights. And um, women Let struggled me, um, with those jump in at this point and say two things which may or may not be related but one I think is the importance of recognizing that in much of the ancient world as in much of the European world until relatively recently women were thought of as chattel 
they belonged to the husband or they belonged to the father. And uh, if you did something against them, you were basically insulting or endangering or stealing from the husband or the father. And the basic difference in, in Egypt is women are their own legal entity and they're responsible for their own behavior. And although they get their status from their male relatives, um, they they are not treated as chattel. Um, and there's a second thing that goes along with it. And I think one of the things that interests me is that in the old kingdom, the earliest information we have, there are more examples of women who have rather important job titles. There's a woman who's an overseer of surgeons, which implies that there are other surgeons under her supervision. Whether they were women or men, we don't know. Um, Those types of titles die out at the end of the Old Kingdom. And it seems to be tied with what has been described as professionalization of jobs. In other words, the men started setting up rules and regulations for how the job was, who could have the job, what you, what uh, abilities and training you had to have to have this job. And it was all written from the male point of view, and suddenly women weren't involved anymore. And very similar to what's happened uh, in the Western world in modern times. Um, the yes, prof- I think of health care in particularly. I mean, uh, that that just seems to fit the pattern of what right? happened with with healthcare especially. Um so although I gotta tell you, I just I, I had to get a few shots to go to uh, a foreign country that I'm I'm going to in the next week or so and um my insurance wouldn't pay for the doctor to give me my shots, but if I went to the pharmacy at the grocery store and got the shots they'd pay. And I'm thinking so do well. I'm getting my sh- injections. Do I direct people to the bread aisle? Or I mean, I, yeah. that makes no sense to me. It makes no sense to me. Maybe we've gone too far. I don't know. Anyway, um, that, that's just an aside that, that struck me this week. It's like, well, you know, I'm I'm willing to give these these male physicians power, so I don't have to get my shot at the grocery store. But okay, that's just me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I think we see that that uh, pattern uh, over the recent American history, but well, European history as well. You know, where as soon as um, kind of males professionalize, and it's typically the you know male industries um, that that women are either pushed out or lose power, lose status when it comes to um, to that profession. They used to say about Russia that once women, you know, that women were were very equal. They could be street sweepers, they could be whatever. But as soon as the women became um, uh, common in that profession, the level of income uh, derived from that pr- profession went down. Mm-hmm. That's a great example. One of the things I found interesting to try to bring it to the modern Middle East, <clears throat> perhaps, is that um, there are not a lot of women who become senior professionals in Egyptian modern Egypt. But what's interesting is that the ones who do make it into the system are given – as far as I can tell, at least within the antiquities service, are given um, a fair chance. And once you make it into the system, a woman has as much of a, an, a, an opportunity to rise in ranks as the men do, um, which is not the case in the U.S. where you have this lovely glass ceiling of, of keeping people out of 
senior positions. Mm-hmm. Cynthia, yeah. do you see that in the Middle East also? Well, uh, you know, I think from my perspective, it's very difficult to generalize. Something mm-hmm. like I think that each particular culture has its own context. So that that might be the case in Egypt um, right now, and specifically in a more narrow sense in that specific field. Um, right. But it might That's be very different. I know in, best. And it might be very different in the Gulf. It just depends right. on a right. variety of factors that are very uh, context-based and based on a particular time period. Um, you saw the status of women also going down during the uh, colonial period uh, in the Middle East as all kinds of Islamic laws that were uh, protective of the status of women and actually elevated the status of women were stripped away to mm-hmm. make, um, the legal systems in that part of the world more closely reflect um, British law specifically, which was very harsh towards women. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So again, I, I mean, I think that you know, pulling this back to the the core theme, um, from my perspective, is what is the allocation of power? What is um, the distribution of resources in any given society with respect to gender um, across both time and space? And what what Jan's work gives us is this fascinating glimpse into this sort of slice of. Uh, ancient Egyptian society as it changes over time, because it's not a static civilization, of course. Like she was just mentioning, the, you know, the status changes from the old kingdom um, down into the new kingdom, the late period, and you have all kinds of uh, other influences also. When the Greeks come, that impacts the status of women. Um, I don't know if, Jan, you want to well, speak to Greek that? Well, the women that, didn't, didn't have the same status. As, not as in the slightest. No. Yeah. And what's what's fascinating is that um, in Egypt in the Ptolemaic period, which is the period after the conquest by Alexander the Great, and Egypt ca- came to be ruled by one of his generals named Ptolemy and Ptolemy's descendants, and it's called the Ptolemaic period. And there were a large number of Greek settlers, mostly men, some women. Um, and um, over the course of the 300 years of the Ptolemaic dynasty, um, Greek women gained legal rights because they were living in an Egyptian society and next to women who did have these legal rights. And during the Ptolemaic period, you have families that are bilingual. They they know both Egyptian and, and Greek. They can work in a Greek social world. They can work in an Egyptian social world. And those women could read and write their own documents, and they did so. And Greek women began to demand, or the Greek men began to recognize that this wasn't necessarily a bad thing. And by the end of that period, the the Greek women had actually gained some legal rights because of their exposure to the Egyptian system. Hmm. We talked a little bit about status for women in ancient Egypt. We talked about their right to own property, and I'm assuming that that property included all properties. I mean, at that time, slaves were property, um, land holding. um, I I mean, when you're talking about they have a right to property, were you talking about all of the things that were considered property at that time? Real or personal, yes. There's a a Middle Kingdom document in which um, a man inherits from his older brother 
and then writes a, a transfer document transferring all of this property to his wife. And um, it, it mentions landed property, movable property, and uh, three Asiatics who are presumably slaves in the family. So that, yes, it, it, it's yeah. all kinds of property. Well, and if she could own the property, she could then dispense with and the property. She, so in other she words, she is given free slaves. It's, enta- it's could, his property, so she can en- he entails it so that it will go to whichever of the children that she bears him she thinks worthy of inheriting. So she may decide to disinherit one of their children, but she cannot disinherit all their children. Okay. All right. Um, but, okay, so property rights, they seem to have a, a pretty wide spectrum of property rights and decision-making ability. What about children? Uh, Cynthia and I were talking about this yesterday, how, you know, with the expansion to the American West and, and how difficult that was on women. And I work with young students, and we were talking about that particular issue, how very difficult the isolation and the hardships of expanding the American West was on women. And this young woman said, well, why did they go? (laughs) Well, they went because uh, she said, uh, didn't they have a choice whether they went? And I said, well, yes, they did have a choice, but in a manner of speaking. But you have to remember that at that time, men owned the children. So if she chose to stay, she legally could, but she would be doing it perhaps without her children. How many women would make that choice? Um, and perhaps so, without any means of support. And without well, any means right. of support, yeah. Right. Yes. Uh, she would, she so, would not have uh, what about the ownership, quote-unquote, of the children uh, for women in ancient There's Egypt? There's a fascinating document from New Kingdom Egypt, so in the middle of the second millennium, which says, if there are young children, the property, that, this is presumably the joint property, the property that the couple own as a couple, not his private property that he inherited or her private property that she inherited, but the property that they have acquired as a married couple. One-third is for the husband, one-third is for the wife, and one-third is for the children. And if the husband accepts responsibility for raising the children, he gets their one-third. Oh. This this explains very well the fact that in most documents where joint property is being divided, it's going two-thirds to the husband and one-third to the wife. And that two-thirds is then uh, passed along, t- used to take care of the children and passed along to the children at his death. Okay, so now I'm having uh, you know, my spidey senses tingling, saying, well, that's kind <laughs> of at the crux of so much um, uh, controversy and, and uh, uh, conflict during modern-day divorce in this country is, uh, you know, in my opinion, has to do with the, the, the money. The one who gets the kids gets the sure, money. Sure, the, the money. The money is very important. Now, yeah. we so do don't we know, know in the case of divorce, with no. whom the children lived at what age. We have no first-hand information. This, okay. this one document that says one-third for the kids, and if he's financially responsible for them, he gets that one, their one-third, is, is the only evidence. There is one famous reference where a man is, in the same set of documents, a man is paying off a doctor's bill and making a statement saying, nobody's going to take my three daughters from me. 
it's been assumed that the the man was paying the doctor bill for the doctor who covered his wife's death and that now that he is a widower with these three children he's basically making his statement that no one's going to take my kids away from me but that's an interpretation based on 20th century English and and American behavior. It it's not stated there in that document. Hmm. Does the fact that so many so much of the information we have not include um, uh, the and I, I you know the the disposition for lack of a better word of children um, it, does that speak to the importance of children in in ancient Egypt or is that I think it speaks to the fact that there was a social con- convention and that our documentation records aberrations. Our documentation records something which is unusual and has to be written down. And what happens with children was standard, but we don't know what it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very well said. That's like that's like the news. I always used to tell my children, you know, they they'd say, "Why is uh, you know all of this so awful and horrible?" And I'm going, "Well, they call it news, not every day, you know." Um, so. Yeah, that makes sense. That we would, it would be the aberrations, it would be the outliers that we would be um, seeing documentation upon. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so what about education? We have a number of letters that are written from one woman to another woman. Um, we cannot prove that they were written by those women. But we do have references in other letters of um, a man who is away from his extended family and he's writing back to his wife and his eldest son. And among the things that he says to them is make sure that all the children, and he names both male names and female names, write and tell me how they're doing. So that in these elite families where the sons were all trained to read and write and were sent to school, to become literate scribes, um, there is some evidence that women learned how to read and write. We ha- one of the situations where we have an example of a woman from one of these families who steps in and handles business for her husband. Her husband's been sent out of town on, on government business, but he's supposed to be at the office accepting a shipload of, of supplies. She goes and she accepts the shipload and she writes the receipt and she sends him a note saying that they... It was her, it's all her fault that they seem to have um, chipped her out of part of what was due because she didn't she didn't have the clout to be able to stare them in the eye and say, um, "You owe me another two bags of uh, grain you you stole from me." Um, but she must have known how to read and write to keep those records and write those letters and, and explain what was going on. She knew that she didn't have the strong personality to overcome these devious guys, but she did have the basic book learning that she needed to be able to handle the job. So that as far as we can tell, women in the elite families probably knew how to read and write, and they probably did uh, read and write for their own purposes. Uh, we have lots of, of jottings of women's purchases and sales in the marketplace. Um, And you would hardly go to a professional scribe to get a professional scribe to write down that you bought three jars of jam and and gave them a chicken. Um, But that's that's the equivalent of what what we've got. So that these women were presumably literate. Hmm. Uh, uh, Cynthia, I want to bring you in on this. 
how mm-hmm. does when you hear these things about ancient Egypt and Egyptian society, what what is your first thought? What do you what are you how do you equate that to today? Well, I guess I, I feel like um, it really underscores that certain things that we take for granted or that are just sort of assumed in our society are specific choices and social constructs. And so it reminds me that, huh, maybe it doesn't have to be the way that it is right now. And it makes me think about ways in which um, patterns that we have in our society, uh, even as they change over time, are are really not fixed. They're not static. So, for example, one thing that um, Janet's work shows pretty clearly, I think, is that the state has really very little interest in marriage, okay? Um, a lot of the documentation is the state is very interested in regulating property, right, uh, mm-hmm. so that it knows who's responsible for the taxes that need to be paid. But it really takes, you know, no interest in marriage um, itself just per se, um, so that's something that makes me think about the modern context. And, you know, as we've fought uh, in, in recent years for marriage equality um, and recognition of same-sex marriages, it is specifically recognition by the state of those marriages. And you just kind of wonder, huh, what if there was no involvement whatsoever by the state in anyone's marriage, um, whether it's heterosexual or uh, LGBT marriage or, or whatever it might be? Um, there's just sort of an assumption that I've had walking around that, well, yeah, of course, the, the state regulates marriage. And similarly, the state regulates divorce, right? Um, right. If a person today in the United States wants to get a divorce, you have to go to a court to do that. One of the things that um, I think is really worth looking at in some, some detail is these annuity contracts that uh, Jan has has you know identified and translated and that has what to is do an annuity with, contract mm-hmm, we'll let, i'll let jan take that <laughs> <laughs> an annuity contract is a contract that's made between a man and his wife it may be made at the time of marriage it may be made after the marriage because it may refer to children that have already been born um, what it does is that the man guarantees that he will support the wife. He will provide a certain usually specified amount of grain, oil, and money for clothing every month to this woman um, until she asks out of the marriage. And if she asks for her dowry back, then he has to give her the dowry back. They They split up the joint property and she gives him back the contract, and the contract is annulled, and he no longer has to provide. In other words, it's a prenup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that. Exactly. <laughs> I like the and fact that she gets she gets her investment returned if the deal goes sour. She gets sour. her investment like returned, that. yes. And <laughs> he can't walk out. She can leave him and go home to mommy and daddy, and he is still liable to provide her with her food and clothing every month. Mm-hmm. And until she meets another man, presumably, who's willing to marry her and and um, start over, which happens quite regularly in ancient Egypt, uh, at which point she says, okay, um, You're released from give your... me back my money, and um, you can go and remarry yourself. Mm-hmm. Wow, I uh, like that one. <laughs> mm-hmm. yep, yep. These, these documents are to... obviously very favorable to the women, and presumably... Uh-huh. 
um, a woman would push for the husband to make such a document if, if she had the status or clout or whatever to get him to do so. It was presumably, uh, it, these are people who had a fair amount of, of wealth, and presumably it was yeah. part of being in a wealthy family that you would make such an agreement. Um, it's also important to Well, and as you said at the beginning of this conversation, they, these are, we're talking about, the the wealthy people we're talking about yes. the upper upper class with yes. these things right. we have we right. don't know right. if any of the stuff or how much of it applied to we don't. lower class we don't we don't at all yeah yeah there's so one exception been- though that i i just want to point out i i think that jen's got some very interesting stories from that workman's village um that gives us perhaps a slightly different perspective um, oh, and I've heard about your stories, Dan. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> uh, the Workman's, the Workman's Village is, is just that. It's a the village where the the craftsmen who carved and decorated the royal tombs in the Valley of the Kings lived. And they lived there with their families in a walled village. Um, they were directly uh, under the supervision of the vizier, who was the highest uh, civil employee in the country directly under the king and um they were they were somewhat under the control of the local mayor but not really and if there was any jurisdiction that had to be considered the mayor butted out and the vizier was the one who would make the call so these people are are middle class but they have a very high status so that but what's really fascinating about them is that because they were the workmen who decorated the tombs, they were all literate, and they wrote to each other all the time. And so we have lots and lots of um, jottings. Uh, we have some formal papyri, but we have a lot more jottings, which are um, simply notes, like as if uh, the stuff that you threw in the wastebasket had been saved. And so we have we have these That's kinds of jobs. That's a very disturbing of, thought. I have to. <laughs> <laughs> but you know we don't know these people. They have, they've been dead for three thousand years, so it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> but we we do see a slice of life that we just have almost no information for elsewhere. Uh, we see these pay, people. Uh, for instance, um, there's a, a fun one where a man is writing a note to his daughter, and he says. Um, because I work for the state and my house is state-provided, I don't own it. But I built a shed in back. And if your husband kicks you out, you can always come and live in my shed because I built it and nobody can kick you out of there. Oh, that's a, that's a touching story. I mean, It's a very touching you know, story the, because the, he's the concerned about it. The dad cared enough for his daughter yeah. that you know, he's making these provisions for her. And right. it's touching because all he has to offer is his shed, but he's going to offer that. I mean, that he can offer it. What he can offer? Yeah. What a nice daddy! <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, not all of them are quite so nice. There's an, uh, another daddy from the same village who is writing a note to his daughter, complaining that when she was sick, he gave her something, and when she got well, he asked for it back, and she didn't give it to him, and she gave him something else instead. And then there's this whole list of economic transactions between the father and the daughter and various outside people. And uh, he keeps calling her to task because he he's claiming that he's always given her more than she's given back. So that uh-huh. you get the, 
<laughs> all kinds of people. All kinds of people. I think there are people who can relate that to their ex-husbands. I'm not. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, you know, I mean, that's part of it is that you see these slices of daily life that are you just do see so daily life, resonant. Yeah. It could be yeah. anybody today. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, wow. It, it, um, it, reading these things makes you realize that people are people. Right. And yes. um, there, there's another uh, great one that that um, I enjoy that that uh, a, ma- a man is writing to another man and saying, yeah, wh- why are you mad at me all of a sudden? We've been friends since we were children, and all of a sudden you're not speaking to me. And anyway, you're not a real man anyway because you've never been able to get your wife pregnant. <laughs> Low blow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and besides that, your 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 member is very tiny. <laughs> yeah. Right. No. Uh, now, when I say wives, I mean serial wives. It doesn't. The Egyptians were not polygamists, yeah. but but yeah, they yeah. they did go into serial monogamy quite a bit. <laughs> That's funny. Um, okay, let's as long as we're getting on to the you know in in on this vein, let's go with it. What about sex <laughs> for um, uh, Egyptian women? Do we know anything about that? Um, were they expected to participate? Were they expected to enjoy it? Were they expected to? That, they that were certainly expected to participate. They were. There are several levels. There are from the New Kingdom. There are a collection of love songs, which are erotic poems. Uh, some of them in the voice of a, a young girl. Some of them in the voice of a young man. Um, several of them where the young people were still living at home, but they were. Uh, clearly enjoying mutual, mutually enjoying sex, and in some cases even looking forward to marrying the person that they're having the sex with. Um, another aspect of sexual participation in Egyptian is that, um, as you know, um, Egyptians liked their lives well enough that they wanted to keep living after they died and expended a great amount of money to build tombs and and make preparations for the afterlife. One of the aspects of that is that a man had to be revivified in the afterlife. And he couldn't do it on his own. He needed his wife. He, in order to be fully alive in the afterlife, he had to be sexually alive. And the only way he could do that was to have a woman around. And so in a, a man's tomb, the, the presentation of his wife, uh, and if, if he's not married, if he's, if he's divorced, he's never married, uh, he can use his mother or his sister, but it, by preference, it, it's your, your wife who has to be there and alluring so that you, the man, get interested and can perform. And yeah, the, well, that, the, that gives new meaning to the phrase raising the dead, doesn't it? It will. And literally, in the presentation of the brother-sister goddess Isis and Osiris, mm-hmm. um, Osiris is chopped to pieces by his brother. Isis finds all the pieces except the phallus, but she manages to get pregnant and have their son anyway. And in scenes in tombs, you frequently find Isis... Uh, in the form of a small bird with a, a f- woman's face, uh, flying over the man and the man with an erection. So wow. th- we're talking about literal. Yeah. You know what, ladies? We have a caller. I'm delighted. Somebody else is as fascinated by this as I am. So uh, let's go to our caller. Caller, are you there? 
Yep, I'm here. This is Rita. Oh, hi, Rita. Rita Henley-Jensen, a friend of our show and uh, founding editor of Women's E-News and uh, wonderful uh, uh, book that you're working on. We're going we're gonna to do that as a different show, Rita. Thank you for joining us. Okay, great. Oh, um, I'm fascinated by the discussion. Um, I just have a, one question. What about violence against women? We That's have, on my list, Rita. Thank you. Yeah, we have very little evidence um, for violence. Uh, the the little story I told about the woman being offered the chance to sleep to live in her father's storehouse uh, might indicate a violent husband. It might simply indicate a nasty husband. We we don't know, but it's it's possible that violence is there. Um, there, we have very few. Ev- uh, indications of murder in ancient Egypt. I'm sure they happened, but they just aren't in the record. Um, We have very few indications of violence directed specifically toward women. Um, In the Greek documents from the Ptolemaic period, there are some indications of uh, attacks on women and whether they are specifically against women or whether they are against property owners, um, it's kind of hard to tell. But I would think it's probably that woman property owner was easier to beat up than a man property owner. Um, we have very little evidence, very few documented examples of things like that from earlier periods. One of the things I will bring up in this uh, context, though, and it's a little bit on a sidetrack but maybe relevant, uh, from the New Kingdom, we do have records of uh, what are called tomb robberies and so on. Um, the workmen from this workman's village um, made a little money on the side by breaking into the tombs that and stealing the gold and silver out of them. And uh, the state didn't like this, especially when they broke into the tombs of the kings that had recently been buried. And so they arrested some of these people and... Um, got them to spill the beans, and then they arrested anybody that was mentioned by them. And they also arrested um, the wives of some of these men uh, and interrogated them to find out what they knew. And as far as we can tell, uh, interrogation in ancient Egypt involved beating people up, twisting their arms and legs, and uh, basically um, torturing them uh, until they told whatever they knew. And the the women were treated exactly the same way as the men. What about women being punished for their husband's behaviors? Was was that happening? Did that ever happen? I can't think of an example of that. Okay, all right. Were women Um, sent to jail? Was there there jail? um, Women, there's a a famous case uh, where a man accuses a woman of having stolen his chisel, and she... He he has to undertake asking everybody who might possibly have broken into his house and stolen his chisel whether they had done it, and everybody swore no saying they hadn't. And a few days later, a woman came to him and said, the manifestation of God, this is a, a, a term that occurs fairly frequently in, in these 
documents. Uh, it seems to be a, a vision of a God who was going to punish you if you didn't admit to something. Uh, and what she admits to is that she saw another woman from the village stealing his chisel. And that woman is brought then to court and asked whether she stole it, and she says no. And they say, will you swear an oath that you didn't steal it? And she swears the oath saying that she didn't steal it. They then send a representative of the court home with her, and lo and behold, she finds not only the chisel, but a metal vessel that seems to have been stolen from a local shrine. And so she was brought back to the tribunal and was found guilty and was remanded to the river bank, which is the place where there would have been um, a strong room where they sh she could have been held in prison. And a precedent is brought up for another woman who had lived in the village who had stolen a metal vessel and who was um, remanded to the riverbank, and the vizier had to make a determination on what her punishment would be. And, and the man who's writing this, Ostrakhan, uh, who's sending a, uh, it seems to be a, a, an informal copy for the local village of the formal document that was sent to the vizier saying that this woman would, would be, uh, it would be up to him to make a decision on what punishment she would get. Okay, getting back to Rita's question about violence, we don't have any record yeah. of any man being punished for perpetrating any uh, any kind of violence against a woman? We, ha I'm not sure whether this is directly relevant, but I think so. There is a document from, again, this workman's village, where one of the, not one of the high-status workmen, but one of the low-status workmen that worked for the workman married a young woman. They weren't yet living together because he didn't have a house where they could live. So he was still living at home and she was living at home, but they were married. Um, and one of the workmen started sleeping with her. And he went to complain to the head of the village or whatever and was given 100 lashes for having the audacity to complain about this higher-status man. And he didn't think that was very fair. And um, a different high official found out about it and said, that's not right. The, the man who's sleeping with his wife is the one who should be punished, not, not this poor fellow. Um, and the, the man who was sleeping around was brought in and... Um, he swore an oath that he wouldn't see the woman again. And if he did see the woman again, uh, he would have, have his ears and nose cut off and he would be sent to the stone quarries in the in the desert. Um, it didn't work because the next thing we know, um, she's pregnant by the the workman rather than her husband. Uh, and at that point, the, the workman's father, who's also a workman, steps in and brings him back to court for a second go-around. And that's where the story breaks off. Mm -hmm. It's not, thank it's you. not violence against women as such, but it's sort of the same ca capacity. Yeah, Rita, so, uh, Luke, we yes, great. Thank well, you, so you much. know, uh, I, well, I just want to add that it's it's fascinating. Well, the reason I'm fascinated is that Egypt, among all the nations of uh, that are described as Middle Eastern, has a very specific history of feminism in modern history. And you just wonder what impact that ancient um, narrative had on keeping that feeling alive. That's all. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I'll, I'll tell a story that, that Cynthia has heard before. Um, we've already mentioned the fact that 
things changed a little bit when there came to be a, a, a sizable Greek population. I, I said the legal situation for Greek women got a little bit better. The legal situation for Egyptian women got a little worse under the Roman period when when uh, Egyptian law was done away with and everyone in Egypt had to go by either Greek law or, or Roman state law. Uh, and so the status of women went down a little bit. And when, when uh, Egypt converted to Christianity, um, Christianity imposed very severe restrictions on women's rights in women's legal situation. And um, so uh, by the time Islam came along, um, Cynthia, I'll let you handle this part of it, but um, I would think this, the situation of women in Islam was probably better than, than that of women in early Christianity. Yes, indeed, it was much better. Uh, from, a, from a legal point of view, um, yeah. Islam, the coming of Islam really elevated the status of women uh, quite dramatically in the ancient world. And we don't, I, I think that is probably a surprise to a number of listeners. Um, Rita, I'm going to yes, let you I've, go. Yes, I've had Thank people you. argue with me about that, but mm-hmm. I, I can yeah. I can produce the documentation for it. Yeah, sure I don't doubt you. I think they're Catholic. You know, I'm confident. Yeah. <laughs> Rita, oh, thank, thank you, you so much. much for calling in. I'm looking at All our right. clock, and I'm going, no, 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 I still have more questions. So I'm going to let you go, Rita. Thank you for calling. Okay, bye-bye. Hey. Bye-bye. And um, Jan, uh, we didn't talk about pregnancy. I wanted to talk about pregnancy, and I also wanted to talk about women in the arts. Um, but I'm looking at the clock, and I'm thinking I also <laughs> want Cynthia to kind of wrap this up for us and tell us what, what this conversation, uh, how it applies to our current time. So can we do all that in five minutes? <laughs> let, let me try to do one of my short paragraphs in terms okay. of pregnancy. Um, one of the things that's interesting is that, um, as I mentioned or hinted, um, adultery in ancient Egypt consisted of a married person having sex with someone other than their spouse. Unmarried people, whether divorced, widowed, or never married, there's no restriction on sexual behavior. Um, For men or women? For men or women. Okay. And so that's what you see in these love songs. It's what you, you seem to find attested in literary stories and so on. You have to be careful with literature because literary license allows things that don't happen otherwise. But <clears throat> One of the things that's interesting is that the Egyptians had access to good um, abortion and um, prevention uh, so that the, the uh, stick of unwanted pregnancies was probably not uh, as heavy a burden as... Um, it was in some ancient societies and, and was in, in some, still is in parts of our society. Um, so that uh, pregnancy is not played up. We, you get representations of pregnant women very rarely. Um, but certainly uh, everyone was encouraged to marry and to marry young so that they would have children who would be available to take care of them in old age. And everyone, okay. male and female, was expected to marry and have children. All right. What about the arts? 
were there women who participated in the arts? I mean, ancient Egypt is known as, you know, a very artistic culture, and with the monuments... The the arts that have been preserved, the monuments, the tombs, the statues, were all done by professionals, and that means men. Um, The one place in which women did participate is music, and women are frequently represented as musicians, um, and in temple reliefs you see... uh, singing troops of, of women who are very high-status women. Uh, that is the one part of the arts where women shined. Wow, terrific. Shown. Cynthia, <laughs> let me have you jump in here. We, we're, I'm looking at the clock. We've got four minutes, Cynthia. Wrap <laughs> okay. this up for us. I'll try and keep Tied it really brief. <laughs> this discussion in with modern women mm-hmm. I guess, and the status uh, of women. You know, in under three minutes now. I yeah. suppose that I would say that every, every culture... <laughs> and leave time uh, through, for questions, please. No. <laughs> every culture throughout time and place uh, think, looks for meaning, okay, and constructs its own ways of organizing societies and distributing its power and wealth uh, and status that flows from that wealth um, and all of it is fluid. So I guess I, I would say, you know, in, in terms of the modern perspective, ask questions, ask questions, ask questions. Looking at the details of societies that are very um, different from ours but at the same time resonate so clearly with, uh, uh, you know, these are just people and people's lives are you know, have commonalities across thousands of years, um, we can make whatever kind of a society we want to make. That These are choices. These are not fixed uh, sort of natural states. The arrangements that we make that distribute power and status in any society um, based on gender are just choices that we make collectively. So that's where I would wrap it up. Okay, and I think you did that very well. You did it much better than I could have done, um, especially looking at the time. Um, the, it, I believe that this has been a, an absolutely enlightening discussion. I really appreciate your expertise, Jan, and your your um, uh, ability to convey this um, historical information in a way that we can all understand it. And I will never again... Um, look at an Egyptian tomb without thinking about Isis and how she got pregnant. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> but that's just me, okay? I tend to, I have a mind that goes there, okay? Um, <laughs> and Cynthia, I'm definitely going to contact you. We're going to do a show about using the courts to distribute power. I think that sounds like a wonderful uh, program. I typically end our show with a uh, quote little difficult to find a quote today, but I finally found one by Dorothy West, who uh, was a novelist back in uh, the, the 20th century, back in the mid-20th century. I think she died in the 1990s. Not really remembering any of her particular works, but I do remember her name. But she came up with a quote that I thought was apropos. There is no life that does not contribute to history. And I think that that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about all of these lives, all of these women's lives that contributed to a history and a history that can have impact for how we live today. So that's why I wanted to do the show, and I thank you both for being here and doing that. 
Next week, we have a rerun. Sorry, folks, I'm going to be out of town. Um, but we're going to be replaying the Talking While Female show that we did a couple months ago. I thought it was a very interesting show about how women use language, and uh, I think it's significant. And perhaps it would have been fun if we could have talked a little bit about whether there was any difference in language and the way women spoke over the way men spoke in ancient Egypt. But we're going to have to track Jan down and uh, have that conversation another time. Ladies, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Cynthia, thank you uh, for your expertise. Thank you, Heather. Jan, thank you. Thank Jan, you. My pleasure. Quick, ten seconds. What are you? What's your next research project? I'm putting together a source book on women in ancient Egypt. Great. With Let us know translations of all these documents. Great. I can't wait to see that. Let us know when it's available and join okay. us next week for three women three ways. Thank you, Heather.